0: Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Drinks with Allie podcast, where we're talking everything from red red wine to pina coladas. My name is Allie, and today is Monday, January 11th, and this is episode number 11. Super cool that it's both January 11th and episode 11th. Today is a Monday, so that means it's a mixed drink Monday, and today we'll be talking all about gin. Last week, I told you guys that the daiquiri was my favorite cocktail but that my favorite spirit category was gin. So I figured this week we'll take a little look-see at gin and gin production. Today we'll talk, take a bit of a bird's eye view of gin, its history, some interesting facts, and I'll leave you with a super easy but super tasty cocktail recipe. Um, then what I'm thinking is that after today we'll do a single episode on each style of gin, At the end of this episode or near the end, you'll hear all about the different styles. And guys, when I say that I love gin, I'm not kidding. I did a quick count of the number of different kinds of gins that I have in my liquor closet right now. Yes, I have a liquor closet, not a liquor cabinet. Um, And that total was 25 different gins. That's not including double ups of bottles where I've bought a new one in order to cover the one that's getting low. So 25 different gins. You can definitely say that I am a bit of a gin nerd. So let's go jump on in. Uh, Gin is often in the distilling world called the biggest category of flavored vodkas in the world. Why? Because in order to make gin, we must first make vodka. So um, essentially gin is just a flavored spirit category. Um, and you do have to make vodka or a, a neutral, clear, colorless, odorless, tasteless spirit before you make gin. So the history of gin. It, like most alcoholic beverages, is very long and very storied uh, and goes really far back. So in the 11th century in Italy in Salerno, we have the first documentation of a juniper-flavored distillate. Uh, Juniper is the main defining characteristic of gin. Uh, So you can throw pretty much anything at your gin. It just has to have juniper in it. And for most countries and regions that are making it, it has to make up the vast majority of your botanicals. So here in Canada, it's 51% by weight, has to be juniper. Um, So like all alcohol at the time, so in that 11th century, um, it was made by monks and was strictly for medicinal purposes. Um, So for for it was a diuretic. Um, And then around 1,000, the year 1,000, it starts to creep north, as everything else does, and during the height of the Black Plague, so that's around the kind of early 1300s, um, alchemists praise juniper for the juniper berries for their seeming ability to combat the bubonic plague or the Black Plague, um, and for being very sterile and also very pungent, which helps kind of keep everybody from wanting to smell the air too much. And in 1351, Johannes de Altair wrote in his Treatise on Aquavit, uh, it makes us forget our sadness and turns us into happy and courageous people. So you can kind of see how people were drinking it uh, as kind of a way to bolster their spirits against the Black Plague that was happening at the time. So the Dutch are really given most of the credit for the invention of more modern style gin. The Dutch word for juniper is "genever," which gets bastardized down the years into gin. Um, so after the Black Plague, it's still kind of everybody's kind of making their own things and their own different spirits that happen to have juniper in them. And the Dutch really take it and, and make it into their own thing. So on top of being credited for just the straight-up word, Geneva, um, the Dutch are also credited with the invention of secondary distillation, which takes the low wines, or the base distillate, and redistills it into a stronger and m- more pure distillate. This process is now used in, I'm going to say all, but it may just be most of the alcoholic distillations. So whether you're having a whiskey, a rum, uh, vodka, gin, aquavit, they're all pretty much distilled a second time. And that takes your original alcohol, which is usually between 10 and 15%. You distill it once to get your low wines. It turns into about 30 to 40%. And then you distill it a second time. And that's where you're reaching your distillation of 80 to 90% pure alcohol or even higher because um, you can go up to 95% pure alcohol. So uh, you can see how that would make it a lot stronger and a lot more pure, and obviously we'd all want to drink more of it. Uh, in the late fifteen hundreds, Professor Silvius de Boeuvre created a grain-based spirit with juniper um, as its main flavor component um, that was then commercialized by the bulls. Yep. Those balls, the same ones that are still around and making Geneva today, uh, still in Amsterdam. So, at this point, it's still a medicinal product, and it's used to cure all of your woes and everything that ails you. Um, and then, so at this point as well, the Dutch are being controlled or kind of taken over by the Spanish Catholics. Um, the Dutch being mainly Protestant. And in 1585, Queen Elizabeth. The first one, not the current one, sends soldiers to help oust the Spanish. And then during the 30 years war, so 33 years later, again, the English helped the Dutch and the French uh, battle this or the English helped the Dutch battle the French and the Spaniards um, in a big bloody war that ends up with a lot of people that die and a lot of people that need um, strengthening. So the English troops noted that the liquid the Dutch soldiers were drinking prior to going into battle not only warmed their bodies, because let's face it, it was probably pretty cold, and also if you're fighting a war for 33 years, you're not just fighting in the summertime, you're definitely fighting over the winter. It calmed the nerves before the battle, and it also seemed to give the Dutch an unusually high level of bravery. So this is where we get the idiom of Dutch courage. Um, it was just straight up, they were drinking Ginever, and it seemed to kind of settle them and calm them and make them more ready for battle. Um, around this time as well, or just shortly thereafter, almost all of the spices being traded in the world are being controlled by the Dutch East India Company, basically meaning that the Dutch controlled almost all of the spices that were needing for distilling gin or most other products at the time. And unsurprisingly, because soldiers being soldiers, the English soldiers liked Geneva and took it home to England. By the late 1600s, so around 1695, uh, thousands of little gin distilleries popped up around England. So there's a bit of a, a long history in there. We're obviously missing a, f- a few hundred years there. But basically, just people drink it, they are enjoying themselves, they want more and more of it, and it becomes a big thing back in England. Obviously, the Dutch are still drinking it, they're still making it, they're exporting it, but um, the Brits figure out how to make it themselves as well. So this kind of kickstarts with a period of time, so 1695, that we typically call the gin craze, but it wasn't great gin. Uh, In fact, guys, it was basically horrible. It was horrific. The worst quality barley was used to make the low wines, so that original distillate, stuff of barley that wasn't even good enough for beer making. So you're not eating it yourself. You're not feeding it to your animals. You're not making it into beer. You're going to make it into your low wines for your your gin. Um, So by the same token, though, it was also cheap as dirt and was mostly being poor by the, or drunk by the poor. Um, By some accounts, around this kind of the peak of the gin craze, of the 15,000 drinking establishments in London alone, over half were shops that only sold gin. So you can imagine that's just over 7,500 shops in just the city of London in England, that only sold gin. They didn't sell tea, they didn't sell beer, they didn't sell rum, they didn't sell hot cocoa, which is apparently also a thing then. They literally just sold gin. Obviously, this leads to tons of problems. Um, if you check out today's podcast blog post, you'll find the drawing called Gin Lane by William Hogart from 1751. And it highlights all of the things that were, well, horrible, With the gin craze, you'll see people who are clearly starving to death, but are still drinking their gin, a mother who's dropped her baby down a stairwell, obviously leading to the child's death, and a large number of, quote unquote, social and moral sins. Their words, not mine. So in 1736, the British government decides they need to do something about this problem. And they impose higher taxes on gin versus beer or any other alcoholic drink. And riots break out, like crazy bad riots. People fight the taxes, and in 1742, they're removed. But it doesn't last long. And in 1751, a second gin act is enacted, forcing distillers to only sell through licensed retailers, effectively ending the gin craze. So prior to that, um, you could just distill in your shop. You could distill at your house. um, And actually, you could distill in your house until kind of the mid-1800s in England. But basically, this shuts down all of the gin craze that was happening in England. Um, And with that shutting down, we start to see the first split in style. So we go from just having Geneva which was a little bit sweet, to having um, old Tom-style gin emerge around the mid to late 18th century, which is the 1700s. Guys, does that mess with you guys too, or is that just me? Like it's super confusing for me that things are, you know, the 18th century is the 1700s, especially when we're talking alcohol. All right, so then in the late 19th century, um, so from kind of the late 18th century to the late 19th century, there's not a whole lot that goes on. People are drinking. There's a bunch of wars. People are overseas. That's about it. Late 19th century, uh, we see the London dry style of gin emerge, giving us our third style of gin, which is basically how things remain stylistically until the mid to late 20th century. Um, So until quite recently, really. All right. The next big factor in launching gin in a big way uh, was the deployment of British troops to basically all of the tropics and probably most of the world. So we're talking Queen Victoria era now, um, so kind of mid to late 1800s. The troops that were going overseas were prescribed quinine as an anti-malarial drug, which they blended with carbonated water creating what we now know as tonic water. Um, And that's pretty much how it goes today. Tonic uh, water is filled with quinine, which is glow-in-the-dark, and also full of sugar. Uh, But it's a great anti-malarial drug. So if you were a troop being stationed overseas, especially in the tropics where there's lots of malaria, it was a great thing for you to be taking. They were also given their daily uh, ration of alcohol as gin at that point. Um, interesting fact, the British Navy handed out a uh, daily ration of rum until July 31st, 1970. Okay. But the Canadians, we had ration until March 30th, 1972, but the Kiwis have us all beat and they stopped handing out their daily ration on February 28th, 1990. So those Kiwis like in their alcohol, um, And basically, this ensured that gin became the drink of choice for British troops returning from overseas. Um, So in the early 1900s, especially, um, and especially with the officers, more so than with just the regular enlisted men. Um, Definitely the officers were drinking more gin. And because a lot of the times their wives went with them when they went overseas, obviously the ladies were drinking a lot more uh, gin and tonics as well. During Prohibition, Um, In the U.S., uh, bathtub gin was invented, which was basically turpentine, really low-quality liquor, juniper, and some sort of sweetener like honey or sugar. Uh, It was boiled slightly and then bottled. It was really horrible and did actually cause a lot of people to go blind. Not great stuff. Probably not very good for you. Probably something we wanted to avoid. Prohibition was both great for... The alcohol cocktail and beverage industry, and really, really terrible for it. There is no real in between for us on that one. Alrighty, enough history for now. So for styles, we have um, four major styles. So there's Genever, which is basically the same recipe the Bowles family has used since 1575. There's Old Tom which is considered the link between the sweeter Geneva and the drier London dry style. So our third one would be London dry. Oh, sorry guys, there's five styles. There's Plymouth gin, which was created in Plymouth, England. And for quite a while, there was a lot of distilleries. Um, Currently in the world, there is only one Plymouth gin producer um, called Plymouth gin um, in Plymouth, England. Rounding out the styles is... New Western style gin, which is basically anything that doesn't fit into any other category, happens to be made um, mostly in outside of England, so making it new. Um, and basically, you just have to have juniper in it. There's also Vilnius from Lithuania and Mahone from Menorca, which are town-specific styles, and a little bit harder to find and a little bit harder to get a hold of, but they do exist. Um, so yeah, but your main ones are Geneva, Old Tom, London Dry, Plymouth, and New Western. So those five are our main categories that we will be taking a look at. So okie dokie, recipe time. A friend of mine once told me that the best way to test the metal of a gin is to make a Tom Collins. So anytime a brand rep would bring in a gin to a bar or restaurant that we were working at, we would test it by making it into a Tom Collins to see how it stacked up against the other gins and if we liked it. You can really make this drink in two ways: shaken, which is how most people do it, or you could build it in the glass. So basically, dump everything into your glass, give it a little stir, and you're good to go. For this, we're gonna shake our our drink. Um, you're gonna need a Collins glass or Collins glass, sorry, which is a tall, skinny glass Um, it's about two or three inches in diameter and about five or six inches tall you're going to fill that up with ice and then into your shaker you're going to add two ounces of gin one ounce of lemon juice and half an ounce of simple syrup maybe we should do a show on simple syrup guys toss in a handful of ice and shake it up you're then going to strain it into your glass and top the whole thing up with sparkling water or club soda whichever one you have don't use tonic water we don't want tonic water And then for our garnish, we're going to add a straw and a cherry flag. So a cherry flag is an orange wheel with a cherry stuck in the middle. looks a little bit like a sunrise. Get them a lot on tequila sunrises, um, Shirley Temples, lots of drinks. They look really pretty. And uh, other than that, you just have to give it a good drink and enjoy. So with that, we'll wrap another episode. If you want to leave a question, comment, or a show topic, I'd love to know what you guys want to hear me talk about. You can reach me by email at drinkswithally at gmail.com. So D-R-I-N-K-S-W-I-T-H-A-L-I at gmail.com. You can leave a comment on this podcast page on the website or uh, by using the comment page on the website, which is drinkswithally.com. So again, D-R-I-N-K-S-W-I-T-H-A-L-I.com. You can also reach me on all of the social medias. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, MeWe, and Pinterest, they're all at DrinksWithAlly. So fill your glass with something tasty this week, guys. Cheers, everybody.